Unshackled of Pacific Garden Mission presents History's Greatest Sermons, where we share the personal history of godly men who brought forth the truth of the gospel in powerful sermons to a world long ago. And now, here are your hosts, Tim Lundeen and Kelly Robbins. Hey, Tim, good morning. Good morning. Good to see you again. How are you today? I'm doing great, actually. Good. It is cold up here in the Northlands. Yeah, again. And we welcome you wherever you are to History's Greatest Sermons. Hopefully Thanks it's for warmer where you are. Let's put <laughs> and it we that all way. hope dearly that it is. Today, we're going to take a quick listen to Charles Spurgeon. Yes. However, we're not talking about things we've heard before because we've done one of his sermons before. We have. We've heard him before. You can catch those on the Unshackled app or go to unshackled.org. You see all of our podcasts there and all of the history and the various things that we've done. That's right. So we'll let you do that. All the older episodes are available. Please go online. Check out the Unshackled app. It's a great resource. Um, Yeah, today he's going to talk about, the sermon is titled Beauty for Ashes. And it made me think of something that I believe we may have mentioned, but Charles Spurgeon had this kind of a history of extreme highs and extreme lows. Mm. Some people attribute it to, I don't know if you remember, but there's a story of uh, he was supposed to give a sermon somewhere and there were 10,000 people in this building and he was showing up and someone had yelled fire and it caused a stampede and it caused this massive exodus from this building and people had died. And that hit him so profoundly. Some of his peers at the time said he never got over it. Yes. And he would be known for severe depression Mm. Mm-hmm. I, which is fascinating to me. And I'm, what's what's unfortunate is we have the print version of this sermon. And according to the document we have, it was published in 1913. Okay. But he had died decades before. He had oh. died in the late 1800s. So it's like, I don't quite know when this sermon was delivered. Okay. But it's fascinating to hear it, knowing that he's been through those ups and downs. There was a gravitas. And yeah. you will hear that in his words and in his tone and in the timbre. Yeah. So we're going to listen in to Charles Spurgeon and his sermon, Beauty for Ashes. And he's taking it from Isaiah chapter 61. So read that as well. But here is Charles Spurgeon. Let's listen in. Beauty for Ashes, Isaiah 61.3. I would remind you that the mission of our Lord Jesus Christ related to mourners in Zion. He did not come into the world to exalt those who are high, to give greater power to the strong, or to clothe those who are already clad in their own righteousness. No, no, the Spirit of God was upon him that he might preach good tidings to the meek, that broken hearts should be bound up, captives redeemed, and prisoners released. He came with blessings for the poor, not with luxuries for the rich. This ought to be a very great subject of thanksgiving to those who are heavy of heart. Is it not sweet to think that the anointed of the Lord came for your sakes, that you of the rueful countenance, whose eyelids are fringed with beaded tears, you whose songs are dirges, You who dwell at death's door may be brought forth into the sunlight. Most men choose cheerful company whereby they may be entertained. But the Lord Jesus evidently selects mourners and delights in those whom he may encourage and cheer. Blessed be his name. How meek and lowly is he in all his ways. How forgetful of self and how thoughtful towards his poor servants. 
He looks upon them with a pitying eye and makes untold blessings their portion. Notice with pleasure that in dealing with mourners, according to the text before us, the Lord acts upon terms of exchange or barter. He gives them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, and the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. It is a gracious exchange, but it is tantamount to everything being a free gift. To give unto them beauty for ashes is a free gift, because what he takes away is of no value, and they are glad to be rid of it. In condescending compassion, he took our ashes upon himself. Ah, how they once covered his sacred head and marred his beauty. He took our mourning. Alas, how it made him the man of sorrows in the day of his humiliation. He took our spirit of heaviness, and as he lay prostrate in the garden beneath the load, he was exceeding heavy and sorrowful, even unto death. He took a loss to give us a gain, and so it is a barter in which there is a double profit upon our side. We lose a loss, and the gain is pure gain. From our Lord the blessings of love are all of free grace, and therefore let him have all the praise. I am sure that no mourner would hesitate to deal with Jesus on these special terms, of which only divine love could have thought. If you have ashes, will you not be glad to exchange them for beauty? If you are mourning, will you not willingly cease from weeping to be anointed with the oil of joy? And if the spirit of heaviness presses upon you like a nightmare, Will you not be glad to be set free and to be arrayed in the glittering garments of praise? Yes, there could not be better terms than those which grace has invented. We accept them with delight. Poor mourner, they are especially ordained for you, that by a twofold grace in removing evil and bestowing good, you might be doubly enriched and comfort it. In our present meditation, I shall call attention first to the lamentable condition in which many of the Lord's mourners are found. They sit in ashes, expressive of deep sorrow. Secondly, we shall observe the divine interposition on their behalf, for the ashes are removed. And thirdly, we shall notice the sacred gift, beauty for ashes. Let us begin with the mourner's condition. He is covered with ashes as the emblem of his sad estate. Let us now, like Cinderella, sit down among the cinders for a while, in order that we may come forth from the ashes with something better than glass slippers, adorned with a beauty which shall befit the king's courts, the fairy fable, which has often made our childhood smile, shall now be actually realized in our own souls. Yea, we shall see how far truth outshines romance. 
How much grander are the facts of God than the fictions of men? It seems from the text that the righteous are sometimes covered with grief. Orientals were always excessive in the use of symbols, and hence, if they were in sorrow, they endeavoured to make their outward appearance describe their inward misery. They took off all their soft garments and put on sackcloth, and this they rent and tore into rags, and then upon their heads, Instead of perfumed oil, which they were so fond of using, they threw ashes and so disfigured themselves and made themselves objects of pity. Ashes were of old ensigns of mourning, and they continued to be so down to popish times, of which we have a trace in the day called Ash Wednesday which was the commencement of the time of fasting known as Lent. It was supposed that those who commenced to fast sat in ashes to begin with. Such symbols we leave to those who believe in the bodily exercises and outward rites of will-worship. However, God's servants have their spiritual fasts and their heads are metaphorically covered with ashes. I will not stop to read you the list of the occasions in which the princes of the blood royal of heaven are found sitting in the place of humiliation and distress. Suffice it to say that they began their new life among the ashes. Like Jabez, who was more honorable than his brethren, they were born in sorrow. Some of us will never forget our grief for sin. It was a bitterness with which no stranger could intermeddle. We shall never forget the anguish of our soul and our deep humiliation, which no ashes could sufficiently symbolize. Like the patriarch of old, we cried, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Repentance since then has always had a large degree of mourning connected with it. Sorrow has salted o'er our penitential tears. It is right it should be so. And it is equally right that we should never leave off repenting. Repentance and faith are two inseparable companions. They flourish or decay together like the two arms of the human body. If faith could enter heaven, repentance would certainly pass the gate at the same time that they will not both enter there or something near akin to them, I will not venture to assert quite so confidently as some have done. Whether in eternity I shall regret that I have sinned and shall still believe in Jesus and find my everlasting safety in doing so, I will not positively say. But if I so asserted, who could refute the statement? Assuredly. We shall mourn for sin as long as we are upon the earth, and we do not desire to do otherwise. Grief for sin and love to Jesus will endure through life. There will never come a time when we shall refuse to bathe with tears the pierced feet and kiss them with warmest love. Sorrow and love 
go side by side. Nor height nor depth can e'er divide their heaven-appointed bands. Those dear associates still are one, nor till the race of life is run disjoin their wedded hands. We have to mourn bitterly when we have fallen upon times of strong temptation and, alas, of surprising sin. We grieve to confess the fact, but it is sadly true that faults have overtaken us. Who among God's chosen sheep has not gone astray? In consequence of such sin, we have had to return to the sackcloth and the ashes, and our heart has sunk within us. By reason of our old nature, we have transgressed like David, and then, by reason of our new nature, we have wept like David and mourned our broken bones. If a foul spot has defiled our garments, we have been led by the Holy Ghost to go at once to Jesus. And while he has washed it out with his blood, we have lamented our offence. Whenever believers permit the fires of sin to burn, they are made ere long to cast the ashes of repentance upon their heads and shrink into the dust. Beloved friends, we have also covered our heads with ashes on account of the sins of others. Parents have been compelled to sorrow very grievously for their sons and daughters. The wail of David is no unusual sound. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son, would God I had died for thee, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Many a woman sits in ashes half her life because of her ungodly husband who makes her life bitter to her. Many a loving sister pines inwardly because of a profligate brother who persists in ruining himself. The crimes of the world are the burdens of the saints. We cannot make the ungodly mourn for their guilt, but we can and do deeply mourn over their insensibility. How can we bear to see our fellow men choosing everlasting destruction, rejecting their own mercies and plunging themselves into eternal misery? If Hagar said, let me not see the death of the child, and if the prophet's eyes ran with ceaseless tears over the slain of his people, shall not we mourn in dust and ashes the willful soul suicide of our neighbours, who perish before our very eyes with mercy at their doors? Moreover, we pity the Christian who does not frequently mourn over the depravity of the times in which he lives. Infidelity has, in these last days, stolen the garb of religion, so that now we frequently meet with volumes in which the fundamentals of the faith are denied, written by ministers of churches whose professed creed is orthodox. Our grandfathers would have shuddered at the reading from a disciple of Tom Paine's sentiments which pretend ministers of the gospel have given forth to the world. Things have reached a painful pass when those who are called to office on purpose to proclaim the gospel 
are allowed to use their position to sow doubts about it and sap and undermine all belief in it. Such conduct is meanness itself, and it is a wonder that the churches tolerate it. Only Satan himself could have put it into a man's heart to become a salaried preacher of the gospel in order to deny its fundamental truths. He who does this is Judas Redivivus, Iscariot the second. God save us from all complicity with such practical falsehood and fraud. But when the child of God sees this, and sees beside ritualism and latitudinarianism spreading on all sides, he feels a sympathy with Mordecai, of whom we read that when he perceived all that was done, he rent his clothes and put on sackcloth with ashes and went out into the midst of the city and cried with a loud and bitter cry. It were a happy omen if there were more of this, and especially if many could be found to imitate Daniel, who said, I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. We should soon behold the dawn of better days if such ashes were commonly found upon saintly heads. Yes, Yes, the best of God's people must sometimes sit down among the ashes and cry, Woe is me! When the saints mourn, it will sometimes happen that they cannot help showing their sorrow. It is too great to be controlled or concealed. Usually a spiritual man tries to conceal his soul's distress, and he has his master's command for doing so. For Jesus said, Thou, when thou fastest, anoint thine head and wash thy face, that thou appear not unto men to fast. In personal trouble, we would rather bear our burden alone than load others with it. And therefore, we endeavor to maintain a cheerful manner, even when our heart is sinking like a millstone in the flood. As to spiritual depressions, we cannot show these to men who know nothing about them. And in the presence of the ungodly, we are dumb upon such topics. But there are sorrows which will have a tongue concerning which we may even be bidden to speak, as says the prophet, O daughter of my people, gird thee with sackcloth and wallow thyself in ashes. At such times we must express our inward grief, and then the men of the world begin to ask, What ails him? And jeeringly to cry, He is melancholy! Religion has turned his brain. Note that morning, young woman. Her mother said only the other night, What makes Jane so sorrowful? She did not know that her girl was under a sense of sin. Your workmates asked you, my good friend, the other morning, What makes you so dull? They did not comprehend that their vile language had helped to vex your heart and had wounded you so that your heart was bleeding inwardly. As we have joys that worldlings cannot share, 
so have we sorrows which they cannot comprehend. And yet we are obliged now and then to let them see that we are cast down, even though this brings us new reproach. The ashes must sometimes be upon our head, and we must cry, They have heard that I sigh. All mine enemies have heard of my trouble. Do not, therefore, beloved friends, when you see a mournful believer, condemn him, nor even depreciate him. For his sorrow may be a necessity of nature, yea, it may even be a direct result of his eminence in grace. He may perhaps love the souls of men more than you think. He may have a more tender sense of the sinfulness of sin than you have. And perhaps if you knew his family trials, and if you knew the jealousy of his walk with God, or if you knew how the Lord has hidden his face from him, you would not wonder at his rueful countenance. You might even marvel that he was not more cast down, and you might be ready to give him your pity and even your admiration instead of your cold censure. Be sure of this that some of the holiest of men have mourned as David did. I have eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping. Next, let us note that such grief disfigures them. I gather that from the contrast intended by the words of our text, beauty for ashes, ashes are not beautifiers, and mournful faces are seldom attractive. A believer, when he is in a mourning frame of mind, wears a marred countenance. He is disfigured before his friends. He makes bad company for them, and they are apt to see his weak points. He is disfigured before his fellow Christians. They delight to see a brother rejoicing in the Lord. For this is a manifest token of favor, but sorrow of heart is often contagious and therefore is not admired. The mourning Christian is especially disfigured in his own esteem. When he looks in the glass and sees his rueful visage, he cries to himself, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Can all be right within? If it be so, why am I thus? He questions, upbraids, and condemns himself. If his eyes were not so weakened by tears, he might see a beauty in his sorrow. Yet just now he cannot, but views himself as a mass of uncomeliness. Nor is he altogether in error, for generally... With spiritual mourning, there is a measure of real disfigurement. Unbelief, for instance, is a terrible blot upon any man's beauty. Distrust of God is a horrible blotch. Discontent exceedingly injures mental and spiritual loveliness. We are not lovely when we are unbelieving, petulant, envious, or discontented. We are not beautiful when we are distrustful and suspicious, self-willed and rebellious. Yet these evils often go with soul sorrow. 
And we may truthfully say that some Christians are not only at times very sorrowful, but their beauty is marred by their misery. The grief of good men's hearts is often a very expressive one, as the language before us suggests. When sorrow puts ashes on its head, what does it say? It makes the man eloquently declare that he feels himself to be as worthless as the dust and the ashes of his house. I cover my head, he says, with ashes to show that the very noblest part of me, my head, my intellect, is a poor, fallen, earthly thing of which I dare not boast. I count the best thing there is in me to be but dust and ashes, fit only to be cast away. You mourners often thus despise yourselves. Well, if it is any consolation to you to know it, I know a minister of Christ who, the longer he lives, thinks less and less of himself and utterly abhors himself before God. It is a wonder of divine grace that the Lord should ever have loved us at all, for there is nothing in our nature that is lovely. Through our fall, there is everything in us to be hated by his pure and holy mind, but nothing to esteem. And the best of the best, when they are at their best, are poor creatures. Lord, what is man that thou art mindful of him? If the righteous judge had swept the whole race away at the first with the besom of destruction, he would still have been as great and glorious and blessed as he is. He only spares us because he is infinite in mercy. When Abraham said, I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord, I that am but dust and ashes, he had not too lowly an opinion of himself. For even the father of the faithful Though prince among men was nothing in himself but a son of fallen Adam, and nothing but undeserved mercy made him to differ from the idolatrous race out of which he was chosen and called. Earth to earth, ashes to ashes is our last memorial, and all along we are tending that way by nature, for we are of the earth earthy. When we put ashes on our head, we do but confess ourselves to be what we really are. That was Charles Spurgeon, portrayed by Brad Armacost. Man. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's really weighty and dark at first. And yes. I want to remind listeners, there is a part two So please come back for episode two. You're going to want to hear uh, part two of this one. I love the the point that he makes that mourning has its rightful place, especially in regards to repentance. Mm -hmm. Mourning isn't just that things are going bad in my life. It's that maybe I've done something bad or I've done something wrong. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that you actually, we want to feel bad about doing something. It's a good sign. Yes. You know, it's like you, you commit a sin against a brother and you're just like, man, I feel terrible. That's a good sign. It drives you. Yes. To do what? 
to, to repent. Take, exactly. Yeah. To repent. That morning is just like, oh my goodness, I, I am so undeserving of the grace God's giving me. And of course, that's the whole point. It would be a shame to avoid it. Yes. To be like, well, I'm just going to pretend everything's fine. The more we do that, then as we continue to sin and we don't feel bad about it, that's a really bad place to be. We've gotten less good at that as a society. Oh, yeah. Being willing to feel bad. Mm. And I think it has such a proper function in our lives, in our spiritual core, that it's a bad thing, that mm. we, it, it's not okay to feel bad. And, and the comment is, you've made me feel bad. Mm. Like that's a terrible thing you've just done. It isn't. Not in its proper place. Mourning is a proper thing to feel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, another thing that I liked is he said, infidelity has stolen the garb of religion. Those who are called to proclaim the gospel are allowed to use their position to sow doubts about it. Mm. And I thought, man, it's another one of those examples of these sermons we listened to of over 100 years ago that apply 100% today. There are a lot of pastors or so-called pastors and shepherds out there that are risking leading their congregations astray. Yeah. Uh, man, imagine a, a, a 21st century pastor giving this kind of a sermon. Hey, uh, beauty for ashes, but it starts with those ashes. Yes. Recognizes when we put those ashes on our heads, we're not pretending to be sorrowful. We're recognizing the state we're already in. There's nothing lovely about us. Mm -hmm. uh, and that kind of repentance draws us to God's mercy all the more. We will need to tune in next time to listen to yes. part two because it's astounding. What are your thoughts? We would love to hear from you. You can find us on the usual social media channels, or you can email us directly at podcast at unshackled.org. That's right. Check out the Unshackled app and email us as well, podcast at unshackled.org. This has been History's Greatest Sermons, an Unshackled production of Pacific Garden Mission, produced and directed by Timothy Gregory. To hear more Unshackled content, you can download our app, get it for free at any of the major app stores. For more information, visit unshackled.org. Join us next time as we experience another one of history's greatest sermons.